as per on the screen, our first reading this morning is from Exodus, page 64, uh, verses 12 to 23. Moses and the glory of the Lord. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will show have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The second reading is from the book of John, page 350, from verse 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born sorry, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have received, all received one blessing after another, 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now the first thing I want to do as I start is just to say a, a huge thank you uh, to so many of you who've extended such a warm welcome to us, not just now and today, though this is great as well, and um, the warm welcome out the front is great, but uh, in the, the weeks leading up to today as well, uh, the house preparation, even Adelaide's uh, specific foods left for us and all of that, we've been overwhelmed and thankful to God for your, for your love and generosity so far. So thank you so much for that. When I um, finished Bible college five years ago, um, we decided that we'd take a holiday to kind of celebrate. And so we went to New Zealand, uh, South Island, and um, we didn't really have a plan, but we hired a camper van and, and we drove around. Uh, and about the third day, we, we started following signs towards Mount Cook. On, um, on that third day, we, we came to this, this final turnoff towards Mount Cook, which pointed you straight at the mountain itself. And we drove for about an hour in absolute amazement. You can see it there, of this majestic mountain in front of us snow-capped, massive, growing impossibly bigger and bigger as you drive towards it, unlike anything that Kathy or I had ever seen before. No photo can capture its glory. I mean, that does nothing to the wonder of it. I mean, the sheer grandeur of it almost made you ashamed to be an Aussie at that point. (laughs) You know, you feel embarrassed to call Mount Kosciuszko a mount, really. I thought I'd never actually be able to look a Kiwi in the eye again. This was a real mountain, and it was glorious. John, who wrote the book that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, he saw something far more glorious than Mount Cook. He saw what he calls miraculous signs, signs that pointed him to know without a doubt that he'd come face to face with the author of life himself. He'd seen and and he'd heard the voice of the one who'd made Mount Cook, who'd made Mount Everest, the moon, the Milky Way, who'd made the entire universe. John writes that he'd seen the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. In a way, this book is, is kind of like John's travel log, He writes down some of the spectacular signs he saw when he journeyed with Jesus. But he doesn't write these down just to brag, you know, like most travel books seem to to do. They seem to just want to make you feel bad in your ordinary, regular lives. John writes down some of the signs he saw because he wants us to share the glorious encounter that he had. At the end of this book, He writes in 2031, these miraculous signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at each of the signs that John has written down. And hopefully, we too are going to stand alongside John in wonder of the one that these signs point to. But in our passage today, we're not looking at a sign. 
See, like I was driving, staring straight at Mount Cook, today we're staring straight at the one the signs point to. John probably should have given a bit of a spoiler alert because right up front in these verses, the meaning of all the rest of the book is given to us. Here we have distilled down, concentrated what all the events and the the words of the rest of the book are pointing to. And it's pretty spectacular stuff. I mean, to be honest, I'm daunted to be here as my first sermon preaching to you on this because nothing I say today, in fact, nothing I will ever say or could ever say can even come close to fully capturing the glory of what these words describe. You know, it's like a picture of Mount Cook looks pathetic next to the real thing. You take it and you just want to delete it straight away because it it looks like nothing. The only way to truly get the glory of Mount Cook is to be there, experiencing it. Well, it's the same here. The only way to truly get the glory of what we're talking about today is to know the one we're talking about. And John's goal is for us to know him. Well, what's so glorious about what John saw? In this passage today, it's like John gives us three aspects of Jesus' glory, three peaks, if you like. And in light of the glorious subject matter, you know, the majestic language and that's almost poetic, I thought I'd, I'd follow suit with my own poetic structure. Today I want us to see that Jesus is God, Jesus is the source of life, and that Jesus is Redeemer. You can see why I studied pharmacy at uni and, and not English literature. If we're going to get Jesus right, If we're reading all the signs in this book right, then we'll see that Jesus is God. But while John's right up front with this in this section, he doesn't mention Jesus by name until verse 17. So let's look at the way John puts it in verse 1. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a very carefully written verse. In one sense, it's so simple when you look at the words. In another sense, it's, it's just so complicated. My gut feeling is that probably there's no one single verse in the entire Bible that tells us as much about God as this verse does. It's, it's an amazing verse. Let's break it down a bit. If you know your Old Testament well, when you read in the beginning... What do you expect to read next? God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But here we read, in the beginning was the Word. Before the world existed, before time or or space or anything existed, the Word existed. But what does John mean by the Word? See, we could look to philosophy where it was used in a few different ways, usually as a kind of impersonal logic or sort of rational force behind everything. Now, I reckon John was aware of the philosophical context, but the best way, the best place to go to understand the New Testament is always the Old Testament. 
Think about how the word is used in the Old Testament. Think about how God is connected to his word. Throughout the Old Testament, God is the speaking God. God speaks his word and creation bursts into existence. God speaks his word from the burning bush to Moses. And he promises that he's going to come down and redeem his people. God speaks his word from Mount Sinai and he promises that he's, he's going to dwell with his people in the tabernacle and he reveals himself. You don't so much see God in the Old Testament as you hear God. The word is intrinsically connected with, with who God is and how he acts in this world. It's his self-expression, his self-revelation. But here in verse 1, we read this word was with God. Somehow, the word exists distinct from God, alongside God. Now that's starting to get a little bit radical. But John, John doesn't stop there. He writes, and the word was God. Now that's not a little bit radical, that's completely radical. And it's a bit of a problem, isn't it? In Deuteronomy 6, 4 and, and all through the Old Testament, Israel was told, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. How can the word be both with God and be God and there be only one God? Now we know from verse 17 that the word is Jesus. How can Jesus be God, be with God, and there be only one God? It doesn't seem to make sense. And yet that's where John says all the signs point. John, who saw Jesus with his own eyes, who writes in verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only there's no other explanation for what Jesus says and does. John says, you see Jesus properly and you'll see that he's God and he's with God. Now very briefly, I want to show some failed attempts that people have tried to, to, to make this sound more logical to our human ears. The first attempt is to say that God changes from Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit. Now, this is clearly not what John's saying here because he says the word is God and is with God. Now, another failed attempt is to say that there are three gods. Now, there's no way John or Jesus as Jews could ever have thought that. And just as, a, as an aside before, before we look at the third and, and most common failed attempt... If you've got kids, have they got Jesus right? I mean, as you're reading the Bible with them every night, it's worth just checking what they're thinking. Just the other day in Adelaide, I was lying on one of the kids' beds reading the Bible with them. And one of my kids said something that made it sound like they thought that the father turned into Jesus when he came to earth. And so one of the other kids helpfully corrected them by saying something that sounded like, they thought there were three gods. 
Now, I was starting to get a little bit concerned at this point. Not so much that my kids hadn't got the um, intricacies exactly figured out, but more at the quality of their teacher. I should go easy, though. It's been a pretty busy time for Kathy. But what do you say in that situation to kids or to adults, for that matter? Well, you say what we can say. There's one God in three persons. And you keep saying it. There's one God in three persons. Now, I said that to my kids. I said, remember, there's just one God in three persons. And so one of them replies, I don't get that. Fair enough. Fair enough, I say. You know what? He'll never fully get it. None of us will ever fully get it. And if you have a God that you fully get, that's perfectly logical to you, who fits comfortably into your box, then give that God a little tap on the ground and it's going to shatter. That's not the true God, whose glory is far, far beyond us. We can't know exactly how God is one God in three persons. God's not a being like us, limited like us, and really... We shouldn't be surprised by that. Now, I'm not saying that God's, our gods are logical or irrational. God's being is, is actually quite logical. Let me just give you a, a quick example. It's a little bit tricky, so think hard with me at this point. Because God is one God in three persons, He is within Himself a perfect relationship of love. Now imagine if that wasn't the case, if he wasn't one God in three persons. It would mean that God would need to create something in order to be able to love. And that would mean that God was actually dependent on that thing to be God. And without that thing, God is actually less than God. And God is certainly not love. But our God, who is Trinity, is a perfect relationship from all eternity. He doesn't need to create anything in order to experience relationship. He is at his heart relationship. And God's being Trinity is not illogical. But neither can we fully grasp God in our minds as if we've created him. Let's never forget that when... We're contemplating our God. We're looking into something far beyond us. Something terrifying. Something far beyond our understanding. Well, the third attempt that tries to reduce God to our understanding is to say that there's one God and Jesus is a little God. This last one is is the one that you're most likely to see today. Already in Adelaide, I've, um, I've seen two groups of Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, for them, it's, it's irrational that Jesus is God. And so they see Jesus as a God, God's first creation. It's actually a, a tragic position because it completely misses the absolute glory of God. It's Kosciuszko compared to Mount Cook. Actually, it's worse than that. What John saw and and 
hundreds of others led them to the one conclusion that was possible. That God himself had gone to extraordinary lengths himself to make himself known. But we're going to come back to that. It's heartbreaking. J.W. Smith's the true glory of God, of who he really is, and just what he's done for us. And ironically, in the end, they don't make things logical. See, God's not happy to share his glory with someone else. And yet, you see Jesus, John says, and you see God's glory. John says, you see Jesus and you see your creator. And this brings us to our second point. Jesus is the source of life. Look at verse 3 with me. John writes, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. We're not going to spend much time here at all, because next week we'll actually see heaps more about this. But what we're seeing here in these words is that Jesus is the beginning of life, he's the meaning of life, and he's the goal of life. Jesus really and truly is the source of life. But we'll see more about that next week. And so for now, we're just going to skip to the final peak of Jesus' glory, where John tells us that Jesus is Redeemer. In verse 5, we actually start to see that there's a problem. John writes, The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. In verses 6 to 8 and, and in verse 15, we read that John the Baptist, this is a different John to the author, John the Baptist had to testify. He had to give evidence. He had to point out Jesus' importance to a world that should have recognized his glory. Look at verse 10. Jesus was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. There's something pretty wrong here. This is not just a, a patency issue. You know, Jesus is not just upset because he's not getting the credit for what he's created. This is personal. As humans, we, we've got this kind of twisted tendency to think of God as an impersonal force, sort of out there, not particularly interested in our lives, not particularly offended by our indifference. But haven't we seen today that God is a personal God? At his heart, God is on about relationships. And God is personally offended when we don't come to him as the source and the meaning of life. Verse 11 shows just how deep humanity's re rejection of God goes. Because even when with John the Baptist's evidence, we read that he came to that which was his own. His own people, Israel, chosen by God, called to belong to him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. See, our rejection of God's not like 
not bothering to show up to a guest lecture at uni or work or a special training event. Our rejection of God is, is more like a wife not bothering to show up when a husband returns from service in Afghanistan. But the tragic irony is that the people who were waiting for the Christ, like the Pharisees, were the very ones who rejected him. They didn't see his glory. They didn't recognize it. And when it was pointed out to them, they didn't respond. And yet, in verse 12, we start to see the heights of Jesus' glory. Because he doesn't abandon humanity in its evil and, and darkness. Have a look what John writes. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. With Jesus, the closer you get to him, the more you see his glory. You know, you spend a couple of days at Mount Cook and this weird thing happens where it stops looking so big and so spectacular, but it's not like that with Jesus. The closer you get to him, the more you see his glory. This next verse, I never cease to be amazed at the glory of Christ that we see here. Have a look at it. Verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The amazing thing about Jesus is, is not that he's God. The truly amazing thing is that the word of God, eternal, equal in glory to God the Father, and himself God, was born human. And Christmas carols try really hard to capture the wonder of this. In Hark the Herald Angels Sing, there's, there's one verse that's trying so hard that it's almost unintelligible. It goes like this. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Basically, it's, it's just in awe that God would be born one of us so that we could be born as children of God. My favourite Christmas carol line actually goes, Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. I love it for some reason. It just sounds so strange and weird. I don't know what people who don't really understand Christmas think when they sing it. It's just sort of like, is God shuddering at virgin's wombs? But what it's getting at, what it means is that the eternal word who made everything was happy to be made a cluster of cells that over nine months grew as a fetus and then was born. My uh, brother just had a, a baby at 1.35 this morning. And um, I know us men aren't allowed to complain about child, childbirth, but I'm sort of so traumatized by it that I keep bringing it up at inappropriate moments, so I'm just going to go with it here. I, I really don't get these people who love childbirth, who, who see it as a miracle. I just remember it being messy and dangerous and, and scary. And it blows me away that our God was willing to go through that, was happy to take that on. And that's his glory, isn't it? And it's just, it's just the start of what he takes on. Sorry to scare you, Rosie. 
you should be scared. (laughs) Our God would take that on himself as a vulnerable baby. And it's just the start of what he takes on to himself when he takes on to himself humanity. Over the next few weeks, we'll see that Jesus' glory runs even deeper than what we've seen today. Jesus' glory is so deep that he's willing to lower himself completely to redeem a people so that they can know God as Father. Look at where this passage ends in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. That's the problem. But God, the one and only, that's Jesus, who is at the Father's side, who's in perfect relationship with God, Jesus has made him known. Jesus is God making God known. He came to people who didn't recognize him. He came to people who didn't want to know him. And he called some of them to become God's own. John read the signs. He he saw what they pointed to. He saw undeniably that Jesus is God, that he's the source of life, that he's our redeemer. But we can miss that. We can miss Jesus' glory. Not because he's not glorious, but because his glory doesn't look like what we think it should. This is actually what we see happen over and over again in the book of John. They didn't recognize him. They thought he'd be more glorious if he did different things, said different things, was different things. So what's our application today? What do I want us to do? Nothing. I don't want us to do anything. I want us just to stand just staring up at this mountain in wonder, making sure that we don't miss his glory. Don't worry about trying to Facebook it or Instagram it. Don't even worry if the, if the brakes on the camper van aren't put on properly and it's starting to roll backwards. Just stand and wonder at Jesus, our God, our source of life, our Redeemer, our God come down to make God known. See, we're not getting the back of God like Moses got. We are seeing all of his glory. And in the end, that's what John wants us to do, right? He's writing this so that we'll see Jesus' glory. We'll believe in him. And as we encounter Jesus, we'll encounter life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can call you Father because of Jesus. The eternal word come down to make you known so clearly to us. Lord, we fail to see his glory as we should, not because he's not glorious, but because we try to create you in our own image. Open our eyes, we pray. Over the next few weeks, help us to be blown away again and again and throughout the rest of our lives by 
just who you are and who you've made yourself known to be in Jesus. Lord, as we see Jesus lower himself, help us not to miss his great glory. We pray, Lord, that we would just stand in wonder, praising your name and that everything else would flow out of this, of our wonder at who you are and what you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus, our Lord's name. Amen.